Welcome to Kaya, the College of Young Adult Ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Amen. It's good to see everybody. Um, man, coming on the, the tail end of the, uh, the block party, I feel extra, like, mushy-gushy about you guys. And uh, I had such a good time hanging out and spending time with you. And uh, then to come here today and see, um, see Miles preach and hear that message and Alex preaching last week, man. Like, I just want to tell you, I, so I know a lot of you guys, so this resonates with you, but, you know, my family was super messed up as a kid. <clears throat> And I'm so thankful that you guys are my family and that, uh, that I haven't lost anything, you know, that uh, I didn't get gypped, that, that, man, you are, to me, everything I could ever need in a family. And it's, uh, it's a blessing to see your, your kids, your little brothers uh, grow up in the faith. It, it means a lot. And so, Alex, thank you. And to all the men in this ministry who continue to bring the word and, and to study. And um, there's a lot of work to be done. Okay? There's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of work to be done in Acts today. So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 22. We're going to start chapter 22 today. And uh, last we left off, the Apostle Paul had uh, determined in his mind that he was going to go visit Jerusalem. And so uh, he's come to Jerusalem, and, uh, you know, perhaps with an unreasonable notion in mind, right? It was, uh, he was... He was a bit of a dreamer, and he was convinced that when he got to Jerusalem, he'd be embraced with open arms, or at least he was hoping for that. But then when he got there, it just didn't work out the way he'd imagined, right? And almost immediately, he's confronted with contention, and uh, it's brought to his attention that nobody's really happy with him, right? So the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they're frustrated because they're convinced that he's been talking trash on the Mosaic Law, that he's out visiting all these Gentile regions and these cities, and as he's preaching the gospel, that along the way somehow he's speaking ill of their, the, the Jewish traditions. And, and we know, we talked about the perspective problem that those Jewish Christians had. Uh, they were obviously not seeing it rightly, and they invented rumors about Paul and created, created problems where there wasn't any. So he's got those folks that he's got to deal with. On the other hand, he's got the Jewish people that, that live in Jerusalem. So when he shows up to Jerusalem, the Jews that he used to be allied with uh, are also frustrated and angry with him, and, and they want to kill him. They want to kill him. And so he's in the temple. He's worshiping. And uh, you can go back and listen to the message about how he found himself in the temple. But he's there with some guys, and he's hoping to kind of ease things over. He's try, hoping to, to bring down some of the the frustrations with him, and so he's doing his part. And uh, some of the Jews see him worshiping in the temple, and their frustrations are riled up against him. And so they drag him out into the street, and they're preparing to beat him. And they, they want to kill him. They want his head. And the accusations are flying, and the scene is chaotic and riotous. And about this time, the chief captain of the Roman authorities shows up, and some soldiers grab him and pull him out of the scene, okay? And they're, they're trying to, 
to bring him into a place of, of, of peace and quiet so they can hear him out and figure out what the heck's going on because they can't make sense of all the chaos that's, that's surrounding him in the street. And as they pull him into the courtyard, uh, the, the Jews just follow behind him. And uh, they're, they're yelling, and, and in the midst of this, Paul turns to the chief captain and he says, hey, would you just give me, just give me a, mi- a minute to speak and to address the crowd? And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is what did he say to that crowd? And before we do, I want to point out to you that today we're going to be talking about what it means to share your testimony. What it means to share what God has done in your life in order to deliver the gospel to other people. I think for a lot of us, uh, you know, sharing the gospel can be a really intimidating thing. And we know what God's done in our lives, and, and we could profess, we, could, we know Romans Road maybe, or we're real familiar with, with certain passages necessary to understanding the gospel. But when it comes to delivering that message to people, it's a completely different thing. It's, a, it's kind of a daunting task. It's, it's hard to get our mind around, and, and, and we're maybe af- afraid or trepidatious about approaching people and, and what it looks like to share the gospel. Maybe, maybe you're an introvert, and that causes fear for you to, to, to speak with other people and, and have them judge you. And, you know, there's all these things, all these feelings that surround the idea of sharing your faith. You know, I've had a lot of the small groups in my home over the last few months, and the conversation we've been having is how does your Bible study become more evangelical? What strategies are you going to use to, to find lost people and bring them the gospel. And you can kind of watch in the room. Those, there's like a group of people who are like, let's do it, you know? Like the Braden Bests of the world are like always just really gung-ho, whether that's true or not, you know? They're, they're going to say amen and they're going to hurrah. And, and then there's some of you who look at me like I'm crazy. Like, that's the expectation? Is that I have to share the gospel with people? I have to go find people that I that I don't yet know, and build a relationship with them, and, and that's just tough. Like, for some of you, that's tough. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about today what it means to share what, what God's done in your life, your testimony, your story, and deliver that to people as an effective way of sharing your faith. Okay, but not only that, we're going to talk about what it means to not hedge on the truth. I think a lot of times we, we, we desire to bring the gospel to the lost. We, we want to see souls saved. But I think sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we're willing to compromise the truth in order to soften the gospel and make it more palatable to the audience that we're speaking to. And so we're going to talk about that as well, is, is not, not trading away truth for the sake of bringing people the gospel. Uh, this is a big deal, y'all. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. Let's pray. Rosie's already upset. She's out. She's like, that's, that's all I needed. It's okay. I love you. There's reasons. I get it. Okay, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be with us, and then let's get right into it. We've got a lot to cover today, and so we need his help. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, you're so good to us, and I'm so grateful for all the things that you're doing in our ministry. Um, Lord, I, I sense that fall is, is coming. It's right around the corner. And with that comes new ministry opportunities, new faces, new relationships, new opportunities for friends of internationals uh, to meet and uh, get to know people from every part of the world. And, uh, and those re- relationships are crucial. And Lord, we ask for your favor because 
Lord, we want, we want and desire to be used. In fact, uh, what we desire, what we're, we've sung to you today, is that we want to labor unto glory. We want to serve you. We want to risk everything that we have. We want to risk our reputations. We want to risk um, our time. We want, to, we want to wager our, our desires and our passions. And we want to put our lot in with you and gamble everything on you knowing that you're the sure bet. You're the sure bet. And we also recognize that, Lord, uh, that with that is, is probably suffering, is probably trial, is re- rejection, uh, to ally ourselves with you and say that we, we labor on the side of Jesus Christ. We get that. And Lord, we just want to say we don't care. We, we want and we need you. And you are our only purpose. And nothing in this life outside of you will satisfy us. There'll be no work. There'll, there'll be no promotion. There'll be, there'll be no uh, acquisition of wealth that will satisfy us the way that we'll be satisfied if we, if we count everything a loss for the sake of your glory and your name. We want to lift you up. We want to make you majestic. We want to proclaim your goodness in the ears of anyone who will listen. And so, Lord, in order to do that, uh, we need your hand of blessing. We need your strength, and we need your grace. Teach us today, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, the last thing we see Paul saying is in, a- in Acts chapter 21, at the very end, verse 39, he says, he says to the, uh, to I'm sorry, am I in the right place? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. He says to the, uh, the Roman centurion, he says, I am a man which am a Jew of, of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto these people. And I'm sure that the, the chief captain had a level of, of doubt, uh, a bit of apprehension about giving him audience to this people. I'm sure he was unsure of how that would go, but nonetheless, he agrees. And Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people, And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see Paul entreating the people. And this word entreat, it means to implore, to to plead passionately with the people. And I want to point something out to you. Paul was less concerned about the outcome of his situation and more concerned about the opportunity that he had to address the crowd of potential believers. He was less concerned. What we're going to see is as he speaks, he's not looking. See, in, in chapter 22, in the first verse, we see him use the word defense. But he's less concerned about an opportunity to defend himself in his flesh and more concerned about an opportunity to, to defend the nature of Jesus Christ in the ears of these people who are potentially believers. He wants to see people saved. 1 Corinthians 9.19 Paul states his, uh, his philosophy as it concerns delivering the gospel. He says in verse 19 of chapter 9, For though I be free of all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. In chapter 10 of that same book, he says, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Paul makes it, clear over and over and over again, time and time again, he makes it clear that he's not concerned about himself, about his own reputation, 
He's not concerned about his own life or preserving anything. He's willing to abandon everything in order to see some people come to Christ. And that's his philosophy. And because of that, the way in which he addresses the people is bold, yet disarming. And that's crucial. We need to understand that. That in his presentation, he's willing to be bold, but he's also winsome and disarming. And he he immediately captivates his crowd. So before we dissect this passage and go too deep into what he says and, and how he says it, I want to point something out to you. That the way that you address people is important. The way that you come before people is important. And building relationships is crucial. The way Paul speaks in this moment is the result of a genuine desire to see people forgiven of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no posturing or pretense in his words. And so that leads us to our first key point. Get it down. Key point number one. Motive is important when sharing the gospel. What motivates you to talk about your faith? What motivates you to do that? I'm afraid that for too too many people, far too many people who've been in the faith for a long time, that their motivation is fleshly. That, oh yeah, you'd like to see people saved, but it's not your chief concern. concern. Your chief concern is being well-spoken, being clear in your communication, getting the attention of the people that you're speaking to. Some of you just really like to be right. And the problem is that all of those things get in the way of the gospel. Your motives are incredibly important to how you approach people. What motivates you to preach the gospel? See, Paul was motivated by love. Are you? Are you? See, the gospel is a proposal of love and grace. And the way that we interact with people is absolutely a reflection of our understanding of the gospel. So if the gospel is about love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and God sacrificing his son Jesus Christ for other people, that ought to come across in the way that we build relationships and the way that we interact people on the terms of the gospel. And so if you're prone to argumentation and you're prone to debating and you're prone to wanting to be right, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to put between that person and the gospel. The way you interact is absolutely important and and has everything to do with your motives. For Paul, it was his love that informed his approach. And for Paul, the gospel message was more than just reasoning and convincing. It was a matter of the heart. Which is why we don't see him present a doctrinal argument here in this chapter. Right? I mean, there's times in which we see Paul speaking with Jews in the temple, and we see him making making doctrinal arguments. And there's a reason for that, and there's a time to do that. But in this case, we don't see him doing that. What we see him doing is telling his story. And he chose to speak simply from the heart and to tell the truth of what Christ had done in his life. And that leads us to the next key point. So we haven't even begun looking at the passage yet, but I want you to understand this. It's going to frame the way that we see the rest of the passage. Key point number two, your testimony is powerful, so share it. What Christ has done in your life is so incredibly powerful. And Paul knew that. And that's why he isn't afraid to simply tell his story. 
And for a lot of us who don't know a lot of scripture and we're growing in our faith and, and we might feel like we don't know what to say in those moments when we're with our, when we're with our friends or our family or some, a classmate or a, a coworker, we might not know what to say and we might be afraid that we might not sound perfect. But listen to me, there's no losing when you're willing to just simply speak about what God has done in your life. The most relevant story any Christian could ever tell is the story of what Christ has done for them personally. And we shouldn't be afraid to speak about it. We should be open. It should be on the tip of our tongue. There's nothing more personal than your story. And even the most inarticulate, tongue-tied, and unstudied Christian has the ability to simply retell the story of how they met Christ. Your story makes the gospel reasonable to the lost. I want to explain this to you, what I mean here, is that, is that a lot of people, a lot of people you know, a lot of your friends, a lot of your coworkers, they're not going to be willing to, to hear out a diatribe about the authority of Scripture and how we can trust in Romans chapter 3.23 or, you know, Romans 5.12 about how every man was separated from God because of the sin of Adam. And not everyone is ready and willing to hear your argument from Scripture. But if you're willing to share your testimony and to speak openly time and time again about what God has done in your life, it opens the door for those conversations. You make space for that person to enter into that conversation. And it makes the gospel presentation irresistible to them. And so we've got to, we've got to be spe- speaking openly about what God's done in my life. There's some people in the room who want to be able to do that. But the thing that gets in the way of that is that the friends and the family members and the coworkers and the classmates, they see your sin. And before you ever have an opportunity to open your mouth, the testimony of your life and your actions have gotten in the way. You've already presented a stumbling block. And so I want to point something out to you is that, that Paul knew his testimony. The, these Jews and these people in this crowd, they might not have, not have liked him, but they knew one thing for sure. That Paul's words and his life were consistent with one another. They knew that. And so the truth is for many of the believers in the room today, the thing that you need to reckon is that the, the thing that you believe and the way that you live, they don't match up. And that isn't anything to be disappointed about. That isn't anything to be angry about. You shouldn't feel shame right now because the fact that you're uh, breathing right now is an opportunity to get that right. The fact that you're here and that you're hearing this message and it's resonating with you, this is just an opportunity for you to say to yourself, you know what, I want to change the hypocrisy that exists in my life. I'm going to repent today. And you can do that right now in the stillness of your heart before the Lord. Or you can wait till the end of the service and come and meet with one of the leaders that will be standing up here. And you'll have an opportunity to get that right and to set things straight so that tomorrow when you're with your coworkers and tomorrow with your, your, your classmates, your family members, or your friends, everything can be different. And in time, you can mend the problems that you created. That's, that's called grace. That's called mercy. That's called God's favor on your life. You're his child. And he wants to use you. So we have to be willing to speak up. Let the transformational power of the gospel speak through your words and through your life, through your testimony. 
Speak grace. Speak mercy. Tell people about how you've been forgiven. Tell people about forgiveness. Tell people about the passion that you have for the word of God. Speak that over and over again, and in time, people will be willing to listen. Okay, so now let's get into it. Let's look, let's look at how Paul builds a relationship with this crowd almost immediately. He builds a rapport with them. And this is no easy thing to do. And so I want to talk about how Paul does that, and I want it to be motivation for us to consider how we can do the same thing, right? And how we can consider, these are, these are really strategic thoughts on how we ought to, to, to approach people with the gospel. And so let's start right here in verse 1 where it says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear, my, uh, hear ye my defense, which I make unto you now. Okay, so we find that Paul begins his address by establishing common ground. That's, that's how he begins. And while he didn't know every person in that crowd, he did know his perception of them. He knew in his heart how he felt about this Jewish crowd. He knew that these were the people of his heritage. He knew that these were the people of his tradition. He, these were the people that he communed with for years, that he rubbed elbows with, right? That he, that, he, that he loved, that he cared for. And because of that, he had the ability to say to them of a genuine heart, men, brethren, fathers, hear me. And I think that that approach is very important because what we see here is that instead of focusing on what divided him from the crowd, he begins by addressing what unites them. See, he shared a lot in common with these people. Even though they didn't share Christ in common, there was a lot they did share. And so he decided to begin there, to start in that place. And by referring to them as brethren and fathers, by showing them respect and honor and addressing them with care, he is actively neutralizing their hostility. And inviting them into friendship with him. Does that make sense? And so I think a lot of time we start by feeling, feeling in our relationship all of the things that divide us from our family members. I think it's super true of family members, right? Whether they're believers or not, but especially with non-believers, a lot of times what, what we think about when we think about our, our friends and our family is the things that divide us, Right? And it, and, it, and it keeps, it prohibits us from getting them the gospel because when we think about our mom, our dad, or our uncle, or our brother, or our friend from high school, or whoever it is that you've had a lifelong relationship with, and you want them to get the gospel, you want them to discover what you've discovered, a lot of times we're so fixated on the things that divide us that we can never get to a place where we're actually able to share. And that's called hopelessness. That's, that's called hopelessness. And, and so what, what we've got to consider is that, that hope itself will cause us to find the common ground necessary to deliver them the gospel. And so he refers to them with affection and with love. And there's something for us to learn about this approach. And what we're seeing Paul do here is he's, is he's building bonds of relationship and beyond that, we're going to see him not just start to try to, to build a relationship, a conduit for which the gospel can get to these people, but we also see him make cultural concessions. Okay, now let's look at this, this next verse. In verse 2, and when, and when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, 
Okay, let's pause there. Just moments ago in the last chapter, we saw Paul speaking with the chief captain in the Grecian tongue. You guys remember that? And remember the chief captain was like, whoa, you, you, can, you can speak Greek? He was taken back by that because it wasn't very many people who, who had the ability to do that in, in Jerusalem. And the way that he did it proved out that like, there was something funky. He must have been educated somewhere else or raised somewhere else. And it gave them reason to dialogue. So he was taken back by that. So in, in one moment, we see Paul speaking in Greek. But then the, the ne- in the next moment, he turns around and he speaks in the Hebrew tongue, which would have been Aramaic during that time period. He would have spoke to, spoken to them in the common tongue of the, of the Jewish people. And at that time, it would have been Aramaic. Now, what's important to know about that, right? What's important to know about that? I want to point out to you how adaptable Paul was in his ministry. How flexible he was. Now, clearly, Paul was the byproduct of his education and experiences, right? He was a highly educated individual, and he'd experienced many, many different cultures. He'd been in many different settings, and he'd learned how to adapt to those cultural settings. And I want to point out to you that that there's there's a lot of us who are unwilling to do that. I remember when I was in college at UMKC, I was a part of the UMKC Bible study. And at, at the time, that Bible study was focused primarily on reaching international students. And so I went to UMKC, and so by default, that meant I was ministering to internationals. And so as someone who was raised in the suburbs primarily, I was comfortable with basically two kinds of people, white people and black people, and that was about it. Like if... Like, if we couldn't meet on, like, American, like, popular culture, like, I, it was hard for me, right? I, li- I like mashed potatoes and gravy, right? I like cheeseburgers. I, I couldn't have even pronounced hummus. Like, I didn't even know what that was. I probably hadn't had hummus until I was, like, 22, right? Alex still hasn't had hummus. He's like, no. Nah. <laughs> that looks disgusting. But it's actually really good. It's weird, like, you don't, in your mind, you don't want to eat things that are skin-toned. Like, just if it's the color of human flesh, it's like, I don't know if I want to eat that. But come to find out, hummus is pretty good. But I was very uncultured, let's put it that way. And, um, man, I had to learn. I had to learn uh, how to interact with people who were completely outside of my cultural vernacular. And it was so good for me. It was so good for me. It, it made me more adaptable. It made it so that I could kind of talk to anybody. It, it made it so that, that I, you know, so that even today, as I minister in this ministry, and you guys are bringing in people from all over the world, and I get to meet new people, and I get to participate in their lives and get to know them, it makes it so it's easy to build a relationship with them. But for a lot of people, this is hard. This is difficult. And adapting to, to like, Different people's cultures is not an easy thing to do. And I want to point out to you that it's going to require training. It's going to require training. It's going to require teaching. It's going to require experiences that you need in order to meet people where they're at. Biblical training even. I mean, there's some of us in this room that aren't even adaptable in terms of our understanding of God's word. And so so when we talk about the Bible and people have really hard questions, we don't know how to address them where they're at. We don't know how to meet them there. We don't know how to talk about that. We don't know the verses or the passages or the doctrines to teach or to help them to understand. We don't know how to do that. And so I want to point out to you that training is important, that discipleship's important. 
the LFBI is important to you. I know a lot of us, it's like optional. It's like an optional part of our life. And, and you know, it's one of those things that you're going to get to in time. But the truth is, if you want to be able to give people the gospel, the more you know about the Bible, where the gospel lives, the better off you'll be. Like, the more you know the Bible, the better off you're going to be in terms of your ability to address people where they're at. And the same thing is true in terms of our experiences. We need to enter into other people's culture. We need to be willing to be flexible the way that Paul was, because remember what Paul said? He's willing to become like other people in order that he might win some to the gospel. That was his mindset, and we've got to have that same approach. I think for some of us who, want, who know that we want to be effective in ministry, it's, a, it's important that we learn cultural adaptation, how to be flexible. And some of us are too culturally rigid and don't even know it. We don't even know it. We think that we're, we're good at it, but we're not. <laughs> you know? And we've got, to, we've got to continue to work at that because God wants to send his church into all the world. And there's, and there's people in this room that are, that are going to be called to missions. And, and you might be called, like, like I want to point something out to you. Was it Cecile who just told me she just got, her and Riley just got back from Boston. And I was talking to her about that trip. And when the first thing she said is like, people there are kind of mean. I'm like, well, they don't see it that way, right? They don't see that they're mean. They're just different culturally. And learning how to adapt to that is super important. And it might be jarring at first, but in time, you've got to adapt. If we're going to plant churches all over the world, whether it be Boston or Vietnam, we're going to have to learn how to adapt culturally in order to reach those people. Super important. Now watch as he continues, as Paul continues to very delicately address the audience with care and nuance. In verse 3 it says, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. So he, as he begins to tell his story, he po- points out something to us that seems trivial, but it's actually really important to his audience. So he shares with them that he's a Jew that was born in Tarsus, a Greek city. And what that reveals to them is that he was a Jew of the dispersion. All right, now why is that important? Because half of his audience is comprised of Jews that have traveled from a Greek or a Gentile city that were born and raised in a different setting than a Jewish one, that have traveled to Jerusalem for the feast week. Remember that? And so they're there. And the thing about being a Jew of the dispersion is that you were lesser than in the eyes of the Jews of Jerusalem. You were different. You weren't weren't regarded as highly. And in fact, they would have probably, the Jews of Jerusalem would have probably taken pity on you. Like, isn't it sweet that you're here participating this week? But you're really like, you're, you're a Jew, but you know, you're not fully Jew, right? And that would have been the way that they would have saw them. And, and so what he wants to do is almost immediately, Paul makes a concession by speaking directly to those Jews that are of the dispersion by pointing out to them that he too is a Jew of the dispersion. Cultural connection. Are you guys with me? Sometimes y'all look at me. I wonder if it's because the way I talk, I'm like real intense and this vein in my neck is popping out. And you guys are like. So I apologize for that. I want to know that you're with me, that you're hanging with me. We've got to learn how to, to know our audience and how to speak to them and be inviting to them. And again, build that common ground. And so he does that almost immediately here. He talks about what makes them similar. It's a cultural connection that Paul could make. And so he does it. And this kind of cultural sensitivity would have readied the attention of that group 
but it may have also isolated the Jews of Jerusalem. You see the danger in playing that card? Right? So the, so the, uh, the Jews of Jerusalem might have heard that and been like, right? Okay, that's why he finds ways to build common ground with them too. Look at how he continues on. It says, yet brought up in this city, this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous towards God, as ye all are this day. And this would be his way of gaining the attention of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So what is he saying there? A lot of you are like, okay, Gamaliel. Is that like, is that like the bad guy in, uh, in the Smurfs? I don't know if you guys grew up on the Smurfs. Gargamel. I always, when I was a kid, I'd read that. I think Gargamel, like Gargamel was there. Yeah, you guys. If you don't know the Smurfs, that's okay. I grew up in the '80s and '90s, and Smurfs were a big deal. Gargamel was the bad guy. Okay. No, this is Gamaliel, different guy. So what he says is that he was trained in Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, and this would have been a big deal to his audience because Gamaliel would have been the most famous rabbi and and master teacher in Jerusalem at the time. So that's a big deal. In a big city like Jerusalem, there's this guy named Gamaliel. Everybody knows who he is, and only a handful of people get to train at his feet. That makes you super Jewish, right? And so at age 13 or so, until he was about 20, he would have been spending time with Gamaliel, and it says that he learned at his feet. In other words, what he says is that he wasn't just learning from him. He was his disciple. That phrase would have meant he was his disciple, And when the audience heard that, their their mind would have been like, whoa, wait. Some of the audience may have already known, but a lot of the people would have been like, whoa, that's wild. Didn't know that. And so he would have been building common ground in this way. Now, Now, that leads us to key point number three, and this is to summarize everything we just looked at. And that's this. Number three, understanding people is critical to making inroads for the gospel and sharing your testimony. We've got to learn how to do it. Here's the deal. I, I want, this is super important, and I, I think this is lost in us in a, in a world that's becoming more segregated. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you're watching and paying attention to the world. We're growing more segregated racially. We're growing more and more segregated ideologically. Okay, I think this is really important for us to understand, that Christians don't have the privilege of thinking that way. Okay? That Christians, Christians are obligated... And it's cool because the Bible calls this liberty in Christ. Our liberty in Jesus Christ, our freedom, our deliverance from the bondage of this world, that freedom sets us free to have no identity other than Jesus. And what that means is that I get to be anybody I I need to be in order to deliver them the gospel. And so for Jesus, he practiced that, didn't he? Jesus sat down and ate with publicans and sinners. The, the, the Pharisees referred to him as a glutton and a wine-bibber. Why? Because he was willing to sit down and eat and drink with the lost. He wasn't doing that in order to associate himself with sin. He was doing that in order to reach people that no one else was willing to reach. There are people in this city, in this room even, that people have been unwilling to reach. And it's our responsibility to go to them, to be winsome, to build inroads, and to be whatever Christ would have us to be. For the, for, not just for the gospel, but let's go farther and let's say for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ because it's honoring to him. 
Because if he was willing to go to the cross and to pay the price, then we need to be willing to go across the street and to become whatever we need to be that he might receive glory. That's how we have to think. Look, we don't... The paradox to this, let me point out the paradox to this. And, and that is that we don't need to legitimize ourselves in the eyes of the lost. We don't need to do that. We don't have to earn their favor or convince them of things that just aren't true. We don't need to put on airs. We don't need to, to pander and we don't need to cater to the whims of the cultures that surround us. We don't need to do that. There's a lot of Christians, I think that that's super common in Christianity today. Is that we're, There's a lot of Christians that, that they don't even know they're doing it, but they put on darkness in order to win the people in the dark. They're willing to present themselves as, as sinful in order to, to, to meet the lost. And the truth is, that's not even what they're doing. Let's just be honest. They're just Christians who want to look like the world. I mean, that's, that's, that's really what it is. They want to look like the lost world. They want to do the things that the lost world does. And they call themselves Christians when they're in places like this. But when they're out there, they're everything but. In a world like that, we need to make a really clear distinction between those types of Christians and the type of Christians that we want to be. We're not talking about looking like lost people. What we're talking about is finding them, befriending them, loving them, entering their space. And presenting them with the gospel truth. That's what we're talking about. Now that leads us to this next thing. And that's, that's to actually share our testimony. We've got we've to actually share it. We've got to actually tell our story. So we get to see Paul's story here. The drama of his story. The zeal, you know, the zeal that he had. Okay, so he talks about here. He, he talks about the zeal that he gained when studying under Gamaliel, you guys caught that? He became zealous. He became passionate, is what that means. He became passionate about the things of the law. And almost immediately, his audience would find common ground there. Because what he's saying is, I was just like you. Because in this moment, what is it that the Jewish people want to do to Paul? They want to beat him to death. And that's what... Paul made his business before he came to Christ, right? When he was Saul, when he was, when he was get, getting letters, right? Letters of permission from the high priest saying, here's where the, the Christians are at. Go find them, go cap capture them, and imprison them. And this is the common ground that he has with these Jews. He's saying to them, I'm just like you, or I, or I was just like you. I, I, I was just like you. I was zealous in all the same ways. And listen to what he says in verse 4. And I persecuted this way unto, de unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders. Go talk to the high priest. Go talk to the elders. They're going to tell you that this is true. They're going to confirm to you that this is true. From whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were, uh, which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Paul simply tells them what his past was like. He was zealous. In fact, he was a zealot. He believed so deeply in the sect of Judaism that he participated in 
that he encouraged and facilitated the persecution of Christians. And if you remember, this was Paul's whole life. And it, and, it, and it brings to our attention a really important point is that Paul was unafraid. I'm going to take this off because it's slipping off. Thanks. Okay, so here's the import, important point is that, is that every single testimony, every Christian story includes the conflict of a failed past. And that's our next key point. Key point number four is that every single Christian story ought to tell or set the stage for a conflict. Isn't, doesn't every good story have a conflict? I mean, every good movie, every good book, there's a conflict in the story. And in this case, Paul's saying that what conflicted him, or what conflicts him now, is the fact that his past was riddled with failure is that who he was before was wicked and evil and dark. And so, you know, every time we have someone get baptized, MJ did it today. Every every time someone gets baptized and they tell their story of what God's done, where do they start? They start with the fact that they have a past riddled with sin and failure. And that's important for establishing that common ground because that's what everyone has in common is that every single person is passionate about something. They have desires. They have pursuits. They have zeal for things. They want their life to have meaning. They want their life to have purpose, but they can't escape the fact that every time they pursue the things that they want to pursue, it just leads them down a path of sin. And they just feel themselves more and more separated from the truth. And there isn't a single lost person that you're going to encounter that doesn't have regret. The difference between them and the Christians is that they live there. And so the power of what he's doing here is he's letting them know that, look, I have a past that I'm not proud of. And when we're telling our story as well, when we're sharing our testimony, when we're talking to our classmates and our friends and our family, and we're discussing with them who Jesus Christ is to us, it's crucial that we we start by saying, I'm a sinner, I'm prone to sin. My past is full of wickedness. I've done things that I'm not, I'm not proud of. Proverbs, Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. That's true for the lost, isn't it? They're stumbling around in the darkness. They're on a path, but they have no light to guide them. They have no direction. And so they find themselves repeatedly stumbling and stumbling and stumbling. And what's really important for other people to know is that the fact that you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're perfect. And what they need to know is that you too are a failure. (laughs) That you too were once in darkness. And the power of Paul's testimony is not just in the fact that he was a sinner, but he was a sinner that found Christ on a path, that there was hope Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was on a a path that was darkened before him. He was on the road to Damascus, a path full of his best intentions, a path of destruction. And there he found Christ. 
And so as we continue on, it says in verse 6, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there was shown from heaven a great light round about me. See, Paul is on this path of darkness pursuing his own personal endeavors until he's met with a bright light. And that light is the light of Jesus Christ. John 1 says that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And I want to I make this very, very clear to you is that, is that when, when Paul is making reference to this light experience, or when Proverbs is, in chapter 4 is talking about light, and when the Bible talks about light entering into a dark place, that's not just a metaphor. That's not just a spiritual metaphor that says, oh, I found my way. It is that, but it's so much more. Listen to me. Christ isn't just the light of your path. He's the light of your life. And he's not just the light of your life. He's the light of the universe. He's the source of all light. He is, he is the light. He's the light both spiritually and physically. The Bible makes this super clear time and time again. Matthew chapter 17, 1, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So when he stands there on the mount with his friends, there's a moment where his true nature is exposed. And when that happens, he's brighter than the sun. You ever stared into the sun? I don't do that. When I was about five or six, I did. Stupid five and six-year-old boys, they stare at the sun. Sometimes on a, on a, I'll be driving in the car, and I'll just look back at Shepard, and he's literally just staring at the sun <laughs> to, test, to test the power of his own eyesight because he's stupid. <laughs> you don't want to stare into the sun. That's a bad idea, but Jesus Christ himself, he shines as the brightness of the sun. Isaiah 60, 19 tells us that Jesus Christ himself will be the light that lights the whole city of the new Jerusalem. The, the sun shall be no more that, uh, thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy, and, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended." And just a moment ago, we talked about, we talked about Proverbs 4.18, or 4.19. But if you look at verse 4.18, it says, but the, but the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Jesus Christ is our light. And that leads us to the next point, is that we might have a path of darkness in our story, but we can't rest there. We can't stay there. We can't emphasize that in our story. We might tell about the conflict of our past. We might tell about our past failures. But the most important part and the climax of the story overall is that Jesus Christ himself interjected himself into our path and was our illuminating light. Key point number five. Every Christian story includes the introduction of a shining protagonist. And what that means is that every Christian story includes the illumination of Jesus Christ. He entered in. He, didn't, he entered in and he changed everything. And so we talk about like, like Alita and Sabrina and Hannah and MJ giving their testimony. Stephen on Tuesday sharing their testimony. They're telling their story. They're saying, I had this problem. 
I, I, I stumbled, I struggled, I failed. I, I didn't know which way I was supposed to go. I even called myself a Christian. I, don't, I didn't know up from down. I didn't know where I was going. And then the light entered in. And everything changed. And every good story needs that. I know it's popular in a postmodern world to have stories that end poorly. But I'm telling you right now, those stories don't make me weep. Those stories don't break me. They might, it might be entertaining to have an anti-hero as the hero in a Marvel story. That might be great. But I'm telling you this, those stories might cause you to think abstractly. But none of those stories will break your heart because you know, you know in your heart of hearts that the glory, the glory is in deliverance. The glory is being delivered from evil. When Paul encountered Christ that day, he fell down. And what happens to people when they meet Christ? They tend to fall down. They fall to their knees. They break. This is what happens in the heart of every person who discovers the reality of, of the Savior. And they discover their need for forgiveness. When the light of Christ illuminates your path, it's an emotional, intellectual, and spiritual discovery that results in a visceral reaction, is it not? Why is it that every one of those girls that, that shared their testimony over the last couple weeks, every single one of them cried? And then I'm crying, and then you're crying. Why is that? Why is it that that kind of story, that, that interjection of Jesus Christ, produces in us an emotional reaction? Why? Because it's power. Because it's true. And it's not just true, it's the only truth. And it's like, it's like when, when you hear that that person discovered Christ for the first time, it's like they never knew anything before it. It's like their whole reality was a farce before that. It's like everything that they believed, every passion that they had, every pursuit that they had, it was just a shadow of what was really true. And when they discovered that, when they discover that their whole life has been a sham until that very moment, what else are they supposed to do but fall down before the living God and weep and cry and be broken? What else are they supposed to do? It produces a divine brokenness, a desperate fire. And it says, I fell unto the ground, in verse 7, I fell unto the ground and I heard a voice saying unto me, and this is so much, much like the voice that, that found us, you know. That found us in our place of weakness, found us in our darkness. I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Did you know that the darkness of your life and your division away from Christ, it's not just an affront to who he is, it's a persecution against his name. You thought, you thought your lostness was just a passive thing. No, our lost nature is an affront to Jesus Christ. It's a persecution to who he is. And he said unto me, no, he said, Paul says, who, who art thou, O Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, <clears throat> whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Did you know you could see the light but not hear the voice? 
The voice is the invitation. Many people see the light and they deny it. Very few people answer the voice. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews that that dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked looked upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one, capital J, just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. And thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou, thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The glorious, the glorious story of salvation. And notice that the story of salvation, this climactic moment, this moment where everything's changed, notice that he puts the most emphasis here. He spends the most time talking about that. The largest chunk of his testimony is spent glorying in who Jesus Christ is. And that ought to be true in your testimony as well. And he says, he says, thy sins be forgiven thee, arise and walk. Key point number six, every Christian story includes the climax of salvation. That's the climax, the moment of change. And if you're going to tell the story and you're going to tell it well, then you've got to emphasize the moment of climax, and that's the moment where God changed everything in your life. You became a new person. You became washed of your sin. You found forgiveness. Everything became new. Double down there. Double down there. Now, I want to, as we, as we enter into the close of our message today, I want to point out to you this. The people aren't going to receive what he has to say. They don't hear it. And I want to I wanna, I wanna point out to you that Paul is unapologetically sharing the gospel. I want to point out to you the fact that this this group of Jews have not said a word. In fact, the crowd has been super silent as it concerns things that you would think would be very polarizing. Okay? He's like, I was just like you. I was a sinner. And And they're just listening. They're just nodding their heads. And then he goes on to say that on the road to Damascus, he encountered a supernatural light And that light was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom, by the way, you just crucified. Not a word. Silent, attentive, listening, unmoved. In fact, maybe even believing. You understand? They're listening to him. But it's this next chapter in the story. It's the one one that the listeners can't handle. This next part of the story is one of hope for us, but for the crowd, it's horror. So the people are going to go from attentiveness to absolute anarchy over, about, over what Paul's about to say. Key point number seven. This is a critical point. Every Christian story introduces people to a moment of decision. In other words, there's got to be a point in your testimony 
And it might look different ways for different people, different audiences, different moments. There's going to be a point in your story where you put the onus on someone else. And there will be something that you say There will be a catalyst for either, either receiving the gospel or running away from it. You're going to point to a truth that's going to be the dividing line. It's a delineation. And, it, and what it's going to be and what it's going to present itself as to that person, it's going to present itself as an invitation to disavow everything that they know. And I'm telling you, that was hard for you and me, and it's hard for other people too. It's difficult. Let's read verse 17. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, so he's still telling his story about how he came to Jerusalem. After he, after he accepted Christ, he came to Jerusalem. We read about that earlier in Acts. Okay, that's early on in the story of Saul. And even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance and saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beaten every synagogue, them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyred Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And so what he's saying to them is like, why would they not receive me when all I've ever done is just show myself that I'm just like them, right? That's the conversation he's having with Christ. He's like, they don't know about my salvation yet. Why, why would they not receive me? I was on their side. I was their ally. And this next point that he makes in his story, verse 21, is the catcher. And he, being God, said unto me, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. That's the moment where everything changed in the story. It's where everybody got angry. That's where the crowd got riled up again. Everybody got frustrated. Was this word, this word Gentiles. And this word Gentiles, it means ethnos. It means ethnicity. It means the nations. It means the people of the world. And what Paul was saying and what the Jews heard in that moment was that Jesus Christ wasn't just for the Jews is that Jesus Christ came for every person. And that would have ruffled their cultural feathers. For them, that would have been too far. The idea that, that the Messiah would have come for the heathen, no way. It went against everything that they believed. It went against their traditions, everything that they knew. It went against that, and they refused it outright. They heard him tell his story, and they were attentive. They heard him talk about his past. They heard him talk about the blinding light. They remained silent, and they listened. Maybe they were even close to conversion. Who knows? Yet the moment that he said that Jesus was for everyone is the moment they lost it. Why? Why? Because they would have seen it as apostasy. And the type of Jesus that Paul described was a type of Jesus that they didn't want. And I want to point something out, and this is super important, and this is what we need to know, is that we don't get to make Jesus whoever we want him to be. He's got to be the Jesus of his word. Amen. We don't get to bastardize him or manipulate him or, 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 or change him. You know, almost every, we'll call it Christian sect, or every 
heretical Christian ideology or thinking, whether it be Mormonism or whatever it is, almost every other religion that we could talk about has a different version of Jesus than the one that the Word teaches. And people are really comfortable with the idea of Jesus being whoever they want him to be, the, the hippie Jesus, the postmodern Jesus, the woke Jesus. All of those Jesuses are okay. But in order for them to receive that kind of Jesus, they've got to refuse and throw away the truth of his personage. They've got to deny his character. The inspirational point I want to make here, I want to focus on, is that every lost person has a non-negotiable. A non-negotiable in their understanding of Christ. And as you share the gospel with them, you're going to uncover their non-negotiable. And I want to tell you something really important. When you uncover that non-negotiable, it's not an opportunity to negotiate. You don't get to cover up and hide the truth of what the Bible says. When they ask you about what the Bible says about sex and gender, you don't get to just make up a softer variation on what Romans chapter 1 says. You don't get to tuck that underneath the rug. You don't get to pretend like that doesn't exist. You don't get to manipulate the beauty of who Jesus Christ is in order to pander to the audience that you're confronted with. And just because people have non-negotiables is not an invitation for you to negotiate about who Jesus truly is. The gospel itself is not negotiable. And so while you might be flexible culturally, you might be able to enter into the space that people are in, you might be able to present yourself as soft and gentle, the gospel itself is rigid. And it does not adapt and change to culture. It is not flexible. It does not give. It does not adapt. The truth itself cuts like a knife. And God is exactly who he says he is. And there is no need to retreat or apologize for that. Paul didn't, and neither should you. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And in a world that's quick to offense, in a world of pluralism, that's not popular. If you want to know Jesus Christ, that's fine. You need to know him on his terms. And while he might find himself on your path, and he might shine a light, and he might show himself to you and reveal himself to you, it is you that must say, Lord, who are you? Show me who you are. Show me how to obey. Teach me who you are. What must I do? Show me what to do. And if you don't say those words, then you will continue on your path of darkness. That's what it means to be lost. It's going to enrage people when you say that. When you tell them that Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, the life. They're going to call you intolerant and they're going to call you a bigot. And while this might feel like you're taking an L, the truth is that's what victory looks like. Victory looks like every single opportunity that you have to share your testimony about Jesus Christ. That's a victory. God wants you to preach the gospel in love. And when you do that, whether it's received or not, you can know that you've obeyed God and that you've won the war.
So as we approach the fall semester, we're going to be sharing the gospel. I hope we are. And some of you are learning for the very first time what it means to share the gospel with people. And what I want to do today is I want to invite you to repent from your fear. To repent from what's holding you back. Repent from opening your mouth. And I want to invite you to agree with God. And I want, I want you to determine today, believer, follower of Jesus Christ, disciple, that you're going to speak the truth of who Jesus is no matter what person that you're speaking to, no matter what environment you're in, no matter what the cultural inclination is of, of, of the people that surround you, you're going to speak up. You're going to tell the truth. And there's some people that need to repent and come forward and do that today and meet with someone and, and, and ask the Lord for help. If this is an area you need to grow in, I want to invite you to come forward. And there's another group I want to talk to. As the worship team comes up, I want to talk to another group. Go ahead and, co and come on up. Okay? There's another group that I want to talk to. There's a group of you in this room today that have non-negotiables as it concerns Jesus Christ. There are people in the room today who are like, yes, Jesus, but that thing in the Bible I don't like. Or that, 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 that thing that the Christians teach that I don't like. And you know that there's some sort of roadblock or, or stumbling block that's keeping you from committing yourself. You know the truth. You know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In your heart and mind, you've already confessed that. But the problem is that you can't repent until you determine that Jesus Christ is true and that every man's a liar, including you. And that whatever you're holding on to, whatever's keeping you from being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you're going to let go of that right now. And, and whatever, whatever, you, whatever ideology that you've held on to in order to fit into the cultural, the culture that you associate with, politically, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, your demographic or wherever you find yourself. Some of you guys are in art school. Some of you guys are in university. You're engineers and you work, you're with scientists and people who take classes in physics. Or, or you work with people that are a particular persuasion. And, and, and whatever it is you do to fit in there that causes you to to hold off Jesus Christ or keep him at bay, whatever concessions you're willing to make for the lost, that you're not willing to make for Jesus Christ, I want to beg you to die to that right now. Because when we die, when our life ends, it will be less important who you're friends with in this world. It will be less important how you fit in, or how successful you were. It will be infinitely and eternally less important than whether or not you met Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And whether or not you let that light come in. And whether or not you became a friend of Jesus Christ. Listen to me today. The gospel, it won't, it won't negotiate. But Jesus Christ is a very persuasive individual. And he's speaking you, to you today, and I'm asking you, and I'm inviting you, that as we worship, that you would consider repenting of whatever's been holding you back, you'd come forward and you'd receive Jesus Christ into your heart, into your mind, that you would confess him as Savior, you would repent of your sin. Let's pray, let's enter into worship, let's do business before the Lord.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And, and for those of us who call ourselves believers, as we, those of us who call ourselves Christian, Lord, we want to agree with you, and we don't just want to agree with you, Lord. We want to be used by you. We want to be laborers in your harvest. And Lord, we want, to, we want you to take us and mold us into whatever we need to be for your namesake. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us today to repent of our fear, of our being respecters of persons, of, of the difficulty that it's been to speak up for who you are. We want to repent of that, and we want to say, use us. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in the room like that today, I pray that they would come forward and they'd meet with someone and they'd get that right. But, Lord, equally as important, in fact, more important than that, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, they've never met you. If they know about you, they've heard about you, they've heard, they've heard what people have said about you. They've, they've experienced nominal Christianity. They've experienced religion. They've experienced things that, that sound and look like Christianity, but, but, but all those things fall short of knowing you as Savior. Lord, I pray that they would put down their arms. They would yield. And that today would be the day of repentance. Today would be the day of confession. And that they would come forward and they would meet with someone. And they'd determine before your throne, that you are the one true God and that you are worthy of our lives and that they want to be saved of their sin. Lord, I pray that you would help them, that you would provoke them to that today. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.